Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me are my co-hosts, Mike and Jamie. And, holy shit, tonight we have on special guest, Jill Gebergizian, director, producer, and co-writer of The Stylist. Uh, quick heads up for folks at home, I'm assuming you've already watched the movie. If not, you can find it streaming on Arrow's new uh, streaming platform, arrow-player.com. And you should be able to sign up for a free month of that if you're a first-time user. Uh, so definitely check that out, watch the movie, come back and listen to us. That's your spoiler warning. Uh, anything I say after this point is your problem, not mine. <laughs> spoiler alert. You got to throw it out there. People get mad. I don't know. Are you a big spoiler person? Are you are you like just constantly going the internet to avoid spoilers on movies? Um, I, I just, I, I think I avoid them, but I don't really try to. I just, I don't even really watch trailers that often. So I, I like to know as little as humanly possible about every movie I watch. Gotcha. I have a friend who will leave the movie theater when the trailers start, and then <laughs> he'll come back in like 20 minutes later, and he'll just miss some of the movie sometimes, but he just doesn't want to watch anything before the film starts. I understand. Now there's like, you know, 30 minutes worth of trailers before a movie, or there <laughs> used to be when movie theaters were a normal thing. <laughs> uh, back in the day. At least these chairs have gotten more comfortable, so it balances out to me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's introduce you proper. proper. Jill, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and congratulations on the release. This has got to be such a huge thing for you, I imagine, with all the years that go into making a movie. So congratulations for getting that out there, and thank you again just for taking the time to talk with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and yeah, it's been such an exciting experience. It's still just like very surreal and overwhelming, 20, <laughs> 23 days in now to the release. <laughs> I... How does that even work trying to release and promote a film during a pandemic? I don't know if you can compare it to like how you've done your shorts, but did you did you get to screen the film with uh, live audiences or did you have to do it through like digital presentations? It's been a mix. The the first screenings, you know, like our our first film festival screenings were all virtual. We started in the fall at Fantastic Fest and you know on a, a personal level it was you know, there's a, a, a sad side to it because, of course, we always imagined we'd be able to be in person whenever it finally played somewhere. Um, but we, you know, there's lots of, I feel like, pluses to it. So, you know, the whole country could access Fantastic Fest instead of just whoever's in Austin, Texas, for instance. And yeah, we got to do a couple drive-in screenings in October, one at the Knoxville Horror Film Festival. And then just... Recently here in Kansas City, we showed the film a couple of times at a local theater for Women in Horror Month with a very limited crowd, like 30% max, you know, max capacity, <laughs> but it still made all the difference to finally like hear the reaction in real time to the movie. And like, I feel like that's when you learn as a filmmaker, whether, you know, the, the things you were trying worked or not, you know, like based like hearing the act reactions, not just like how was the movie, but to each specific moment. Yeah, I can only imagine. On the other hand, though, I think I'd be too nervous to watch the movie with a crowd if I ever made something. <laughs> it is, like, equally exciting and sickening. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> the most anxious feeling. I'm a very anxious person already with when there's, like, nothing happening just as a baseline. So, 
in that I'll be like, before it starts, I'm like, oh God, oh God, I don't want to watch this again with people. <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then it's fun and there's ex always excited, like surprises or when a moment does land, I love it. Like there's a silly little scene with where she goes into the hardware store and <laughs> I've always loved that moment. And it, the, when I finally got to see with a crowd, everyone laughed at it and I was like, yes, it worked. <laughs> Such a small thing, but I was so excited. Well, and I imagine too, with the ending of this movie, getting to watch that with a crowd, like the, the amount of energy that you must get off of that has to be, you know, incomparable to the digital experience. Yeah, it's, it's a very uncomfortable movie. And when it ends, I'm like, there's just that horrible, uncomfortable silence, which I like. I'm like, then it worked. People are like, hearing. <laughs> Hootin' um, hollering. <laughs> but yeah, we're so thankful. And it, it's going to play soon here at a couple more in-person-ish things. Like it's going to play at Panic Fest here in KC and then at the Florida Film Festival in Orlando. Both are kind of doing virtual and in-person. Nice. Hopefully things are going to get better and safer and more <laughs> things will happen this summer. I'm going to cross my fingers on that one. I would I would yeah. love to go back outside. Someday I'll see the sun again. <laughs> someday. But, someday. But just to, to go back to how effective this film is, from a personal standpoint, I was just so incredibly uncomfortable during so many parts of this movie. And I, I mean that in the highest complimentary sense. Uh, normally, if I'm watching a movie and there's a trespassing scene, I'm already squirming. So this movie somehow manages to twist that idea around where it's not trespassing, where you're rooting for the hero not to get caught, but you're rooting for the the antagonist to not get caught, which is like, it's almost like you're watching The Strangers and you're more concerned that someone's going to sneak up on Dollface than you are about someone hurting <laughs> Liv Tyler's character. Exactly. <laughs> That's not what you're supposed to think during The Strangers? <laughs> I've been watching that movie wrong for years. But just, just, oh man, I, even at home, I felt like, oh man, I got to cover my eyes. This is too much for me in parts. And uh, when it comes to gore, it never happens. But that was enough to make me feel like a small child again. Like, oh no, someone's going to be in trouble. Yeah, I realized I, in, I should have been obvious to me, but in hindsight that I really put my anxiety issues into Claire. <laughs> and yeah, it's not a super comfortable movie that that was the whole idea. Um, and yeah, I've definitely joked that this is not one where it ends and you're like, woohoo, let's go party. Everyone <laughs> high fives. So I've had this weird thing for tragic stories, kind of like, this is my version of Romeo and Juliet, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely love that about the ending. Once you know that a wedding's involved, you just know, okay, it's almost like a Tales from the Crypt. The fun is we know the destination and you get to ride along with it till you get to that point. And man, does it deliver with that, that, that final beat. I, I just love how much it all came together. Plus, on top of that, just the idea of a wedding, which is you know normally like it's supposed to be a spiritual union, becoming a literal flesh and blood kind of <laughs> union between two characters. <laughs> I thought that was just absolutely fantastic. Like, if you're going to end a movie, that's it. That's the perfect way to nail it. Thank you. That The ending is, in the writing process, actually the, a thing that when it came to me, that's when I we were really early in the writing and we'd only been kind of outlining ideas for it prior. And I think it was over the summer when the short film came out that I just like the wedding scene came to me and I'm like, Oh my God, it's that's it. Like that's the end of the movie. And it gave me everything I wanted in so many different ways. Like not just in the characters kind of tragic ending emotionally, but also I knew it would like give me everything I wanted in the sense of like, 
design and we could, you know, the, do this really theatrical, like over the top, super like beautiful scene that's super upsetting. Like I love the juxtaposition <laughs> of that idea. And like, to, yeah, to end something in a church. And like, I was, once that came to me, I was like, this is it. And we have to have like a really old Gothic looking church, which I knew was yeah. going to be hard to find. Like, can we shoot a very disturbing horror movie scene <laughs> in the chapel, please? Do you, do you have a bunch of those sitting around Kansas City? Is it all like 90% Gothic architecture I'm not aware of? We do have really quite a full, quite a few cool churches. Um, but the kind of church I wanted are the more traditional like stone stained glass windows, which are typically like Catholic churches or Episcopalian, which are more conservative. So I knew mm -hmm. that we were, I was trying to get something that might be impossible. <laughs> um, but we shot in a place called Pilgrim Chapel and it's actually not a, it's not a church. Like it's not a one, it's not one denomination. It's, they don't hold service there. It's just rented out for weddings and really anything like, ah, okay. so because it's not, I think that's what they're much more open-minded to the to the artist community. It's not one religion kind of over that building, so it's a different situation. But it was the perfect thing, and I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me since, or since they saw us shooting there and been like, "That's where I got married." I'm like, well, I hope we didn't ruin your beautiful wedding memories. Now that just makes wedding. it better. <laughs> I, mean, I would yeah. brag about that forever. I would have people come over like, that's where we got married. I just had the movie playing on loop. Oh, but uh, man, it, how difficult is it to go around and, and tell people, hey, I, I would want to use your property for filming part of a horror film. I mean, I know there's all the negotiations on the side just to try and, you know, have enough money for it or time considerations. Yeah. But that on top feels like it would turn a lot of folks away. It does, unfortunately, which for you know us as horror fans, I'm like, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like, are we really, are people still that concerned, you know, like that freaked out by horror? It just seems like a kind of old school thing to be that conservative about it. But definitely learned that in the location scouting process that the, the, the tactic is to start by calling it a thriller. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it really is structured like a thriller, but of course, yeah. super disturbing stuff in it. But at one point, we actually had a house that we were going to use for Olivia's home, who the other lead character played by Bria Grant. And, you know, we were pretty sure, like, we were, had been looking at this house for, like, a couple months at this point and already, like, had started blocking scenes out in it and... Um, cause we were going to use whatever house we rented for Olivia's house. This is it. This is an indie film, uh, tip. Uh, we rented it for the whole duration of the shoot. So we housed our crew in it and it was a location. And so like, we got to our bank for our buck. But so like, we're already like making this deal with this house or like, I'm already thinking it's like a for sure thing. We're in there scouting it like for the third or fourth time. And we run into the owners, which like a father and his son, which was like a teenager and. You know, I'm just like excited and think they already know everything. And they're like, what's we?" I casually mentioned like we're the horror movie that like <laughs> blew the whole thing up. Oh, no. Oh. Like, really? Like none of the horror even happens in that location. But there is the a, a sexual ish scene there. Maybe yeah. That would have offended them, too, probably. But I feel like it's a teenager that early because we're like, fine, like, honestly, I want to do it somewhere where people are excited about it and we're welcome and yeah. not like worried that last minute they're going to be like, pull the whole thing. So luckily <sighs> we found that out like four months ahead of time and started looking for new houses. But <laughs> I feel 
like as a teenager, People I would have been begging my dad, silly, like, yeah. do the movie, do the movie. Yeah. Like other other than that house, everyone else is like so excited about their their place being like being in a movie. I don't think they care if it's a horror movie or not. <laughs> uh, like the house that's Claire's house is this like historic mansion downtown Kansas City and the guy who owns it's like always tweeting about like my house is in this movie like he's stoked about it so right. that's the kind of people we want to work with. you know like that's the ideal situation yeah and as long as we're talking about kansas city i i absolutely love it when films embrace very specific locations you know they're not trying to pass off toronto or something as another american city they're being very open like hey this is a movie set in chicago we filmed in chicago and i think that specificity makes a movie more universal oddly enough so I, I absolutely love it when films can find new places and just, hey, we're an indie filmmaker. We're going to film in our hometown. It's it's a great different look that you wouldn't get if they filmed in San Francisco or Minneapolis or something. Yeah. I'm just, I grew up here and I have so much pride for it that I couldn't wait to like make my first feature here. And so we, it, whenever we could, we just thought of ways like how can we show off the city in certain scenes that could just like the, there's a parking deck scene. It's kind of, between Olivia and, and Claire, I don't know. I mix up their real names and character names way too much. <laughs> but that could be anywhere. It could be in a boring old parking lot, like it literally anywhere in the world. But we were like, let's put it on the top of a parking deck where we've got like the skyline behind both of them. And I was, was really geeked out to like show off the city any chance I could. And, and we got to shot, shoot in a lot of like places that I grew up. Like the club scene we did was a, a venue I've been going to since I was a teenager that bands have played at forever and so it's kind of like using every resource i've ever had in my life and begging for every favor <laughs> we could get and the whole the city was so helpful to us honestly and it's it's amazing how well that works because yeah that scene you mentioned that definitely stands out in my mind i can remember that back shot so well <laughs> and it, like you said there's so many different ways you could just film a parking scene where you don't have to make the background memorable but it works i learned that i feel like early on in filmmaking the background if you can figure out how to make that interesting, that's all like that makes your movie look like a million times bigger of a production. Like I feel like maybe Robert Rodriguez's book really put that in my head that like you think you kind of think backwards as an independent writer. Like what do I have access to? Like as far as locations or whatever, something that's going to make my movie look cool and big or like it has more money in it. <laughs> you know, I think it's all about like locations and background. Yeah, and. It yeah, I, I mean, I just love it. I <laughs> I wish more filmmakers could get out indie movies that really focused on their cities instead of having to just shoot in the woods and something that didn't really put the distinct stamp of where they were from on screen. So at least we have this. That's fantastic. Uh, kind of switching gears a little bit. I just wanted to mention, you you really lucked out, I think, in timing because it feels like Brie Grant is in everything right now. So to, <laughs> yes, to get is. her, boy, that must have just been just a huge break. Uh I think without trying, I got like four of her movies in a row when I was just prepping for this. Like I watched The Stylist and then there was Lucky, After Midnight, Beyond the Gates. Just I wasn't trying and she was everywhere. Then I found out she was in a music video I was watching and it was, it was terrifying. It was like <laughs> reverse stalking. It was just coming into my house. Yeah, she's you know, she's been acting forever. And in fact, I first met her through another project a few years ago. And when I got to meet her through that, I was like geeked out because I had known her from Heroes growing up. And um really bonded with her over another project we were trying to get made, which is still in the purgatory of all everyone's projects. And, <laughs> um, but ever since I met her, I really kept thinking her in this role as Olivia. And 
when it came down to finally, we decided to do a Kickstarter for it because we were just like ready to make this movie. I asked her about the role and it was really more about does she have the time because of how busy she was. Like she really wanted to do it. But she's like, right now I'm working. She Not only did she do all those movies, also she wrote and directed another one called 12 Hour Shift that's on Hulu that came out in the fall. She's writing and directing on a, on a TV show on CW. She's writing and directing on shows on Netflix. So it was all like, when we're shooting, are you free? Because I know we're not, like, we can't compete with those big jobs that you're getting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, it was perfect. And her and Najara playing the characters opposite of each other, it was like, the perfect opposite chemistry that we were hoping for that gives this, you know, awkwardness all the time. Yeah. Speaking of awkwardness, <laughs> I have to say, I always really appreciate uh, films like this where there's murder and mayhem, like off to the margins, but the heart of the tension and the discomfort the audience feels just comes from social awkwardness. I have to say, like, you really uh, play that to a T on this. Like, I remember after watching it, Mike and I were discussing how really the scariest moment in that entire movie is just Claire going to a nightclub, to a social gathering where she doesn't really know anybody. <laughs> yeah, my heart was, like, beating when that scene was coming up. Yeah, we really wanted to play, like, all of these normal scenes that could just be, like, dramatic scenes like they're scary because for Claire they are scary <laughs> you know like she's going so far out of her comfort zone trying to connect with Olivia through this film that wildly fails and goes the opposite direction <laughs> um that connection not working the way that she wanted is really like the motivation for this like total downward spiral and Yes, the whole idea was like it wasn't we were never trying to make you scared of her because it's her story like Really, even though she's the killer, she's the protagonist. She's the one whose feelings we're trying to, rep, you know, reflect in every decision. And so, what's scary is really more so her her compulsion, which I feel like she is trying to get under control but can't. Um, but yeah, it was like all my when I sent lookbooks out to this whole crew, I was like, one of the first thing it says on the page is like, this is not a like we don't approach this like a horror movie. It's a tragedy. It's a drama about a person who's doing, like, horrific things. <laughs> I've never seen, like, social anxiety captured on film in such a simplistic way. It's usually, most of the time, very over-the-top, and it, there's such disconnect from, I think, people who have social anxiety watching whenever it's poorly portrayed, where eh, it's more just the person's being awkward and then everyone's looking at them weird, when in reality, it's nothing's really happening and you just yeah. feel crushing inside and the that club scene just captures that so well and i think really elevates kind of claire's murder spree into almost a it, it's both affirming for her as she tries to find relief but also it's self-harming in a way yeah yeah that is the idea we were going for like that this kind of from that bachelorette party on that's kind of the tipping point of her ultimately like I, I kind of view the end as a sort of suicide that it is she's like sabotaging herself so that this can end someday like she doesn't really want this to keep going on like this yeah i don't get the impression in that final scene as like much as claire is kind of like 
caught up in the delusion and the mania. I don't get the impression that she thinks she's then just going to walk out down the aisle and get married. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, I like that it's very much her just deciding to go out on her own terms, as horrible as those terms are. Yeah, totally. How that was much? the uh, cheerful part of the podcast? <laughs> uh, just like a from a character standpoint how much of claire is really left in that final scene like has she disassociated completely or is or is it just kind of brief and she wakes up sometime after taking that veil off that is a funny subject because najara and i have talked through it so much um i was waiting for david lynch like please elaborate on that feels. no <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting, even as uh, the person who wrote it, I wasn't sure when she made this decision, like what she, and the further we got along, because Najar was really involved with like creating, working on Claire's background and all kinds of stuff. And I do view that she's disassociated for the most part, especially after she, everyone knows this is spoilers. Okay. After she kills me, um, kind of that whole sequence the night before the wedding and the, the next morning, I feel like she's, yeah, the Claire we knew has been gone since before she killed me. And, um, but I think we see a tiny bit of her in that last moment of the, of the, like the last couple seconds of the film. Like she's seeing what she's done. She is kind of knowing what's coming next, that this is over for her. Um, but yeah, it's a very, extreme disassociation that day i kind of view even that morning she's doing her hair she's looking through old photographs and she does her hair like her mom so it's kind of like she's non-stop trying to always like she's almost showing up as her mother to this wedding like she's she is gone um and i always viewed you know like that this was the end of her story but <laughs> and ever since it's been over i'm like i don't want claire to be out of my life yet let's make 20 more movies <laughs> <laughs> let's do so it like the dentist and just make four direct-to-video sequels yes. <laughs> so what is it like be doing your own death scene what is that experience um well <laughs> it was a lot i a big part of what doing it was i feel like i was just living out like a you know a childhood dream to be killed in a horror movie <laughs> and i've i've like i've done tiny things in shorts and but nothing th this is the most involved thing i've done on camera and it was like so it was a mix of wanting always wanting to do this wanting to push myself because i'm super not comfortable in front of the camera and then a, a totally practical decision from a producer standpoint because <laughs> i was like my hair is easy to match for a, a wig and I will I will do the part for, for free in my own movie. <laughs> so like practic with any for the special effects for this movie with anyone who was getting scalped, like matching a wig to someone's real hair. As uh, I'm a hairstylist too, like that that's not easy, especially on our budget. And I wanted them to look as good as humanly possible. So I it didn't like kill me to watch it because I I can't even stand wigs in like billion dollar movies i feel like they look bad so i was like how are ours gonna look good when they can't make theirs look good but <laughs> um so yeah i just think like the, even wandavision couldn't get past that like i remember there's so many episodes oh where people God. have to point out the wigs in them <laughs> it's just come on people you guys have i don't know but all the money in the world how can you not do this and a lot of it is about you all have hair that know how to put wig like that like a putting wigs on people is an art form that in itself is not just like you just put it on and walk out the house but um <laughs> This doing that scene itself was 
way more ex exhausting and emotionally draining than I ever could have imagined. I've heard actors, especially Bria, describe how acting your body doesn't know that what you went through isn't real, even though your brain does. And I I understood what that meant finally, because after the whole day was over, I never felt more like emotionally exhausted. I was like in tears when like the day went great. I was just like so exhausted. <laughs> um, but I had my friend John Pata. He edited the film. He's a writer director. Also, he was coming down that week anyway when we were shooting. And so I asked him to basic to direct me to be like second unit director essentially for that scene so that I could just stay in front of the camera and trust like he once I told him how I wanted it to go I knew I could trust him to to direct me I didn't want to be that director who's going to get up and like watch take and be like I look stupid in that one redo it you know, I didn't want to be that I was like I'm not giving myself the opportunity to do that so so it was fun it was a lot after all, I was like laying in a pool of blood and it was we were shooting in winter so it was freezing <laughs> Well, at least it's one off the bucket list. Yes. And I have lots of very scary selfies of that, like, bald cap on me where I look like I've been scalped. Like, I can't even look at them. It's disgusting. That's <laughs> like prank friends and I'll, relatives with that for years. I'll share it someday. I, I feel close to ready to posting s total spoilers here soon. That's not going to be like your Christmas card this year? Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Season's bleeding. I can do there that with, like, her... I might even have a picture of me with it with Najara wearing my my hair. So that can be like our Christmas, our family. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Send that to the Academy for your consideration, <laughs> the stylist. Yes. Thank you notes to all the churches and stuff that let you film there. <laughs> yes. um, so uh, recently I was reading an article you'd done last year from Room Morgue, just talking about some of the films that inspired you when you were making this. And one that really caught my attention was you'd mentioned The Neon Demon. And uh, you had mentioned that was part of what you described as a subgenre called cosmetic horror. And I love that idea. Could you yes. go into what you would describe cosmetic horror to be? Well, I I guess just thinking of like the the beauty world, the cosmetic world, um, you know, Neon Demon's totally all about beauty and perfection. And I mean, literally about trying to eat th this perfect woman to be <laughs> perfect. Um, I think people do not talk enough about De Neon Demon. Like that is a gnarly, like fairy tale esque horror movie, and I don't feel like people even call it a horror movie. Um, no, that one needs more love. Yeah, adore Neon Demon. I just feel like you know this world. There's there's other films about fashion, and you know they're all kind of connected to that theme of perfection and beauty. Obsession are all in there in that world, and I just feel like there's a whole th thing to explore and. There's a, a Chinese horror film from, I can't remember how many years ago, called Hair Extensions. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, I've, heard of that one. I've been hashtagging Cosmo Horror and trying to, I was like, let's get this on <laughs> someone make, back when I made the, we made the stylist short, I met a woman and we were joking at, around about um, making a whole like series of them. Like the next would be the manicurist and then it would be like the esthetician. <laughs> like every <laughs> job in the beauty in the cosmetology industry um yeah that's a world that's not explored as much and i my theory is because there's not as many women making films and that's not as masculine of a world and it's like because that's really how the stylist started i was like how's there not already a hairstylist slasher movie that's yeah so mm. obvious well and i think everything they work with is pointy <laughs> exactly i was like 
the scary part is I am a hairstylist. And so I was just like, this whole, I was thinking of films like the silly kind of 90s early slashers like Dr. Giggles and The Dentist and stuff. And that mixed with like all the torture movies. It's like, how is there not a hairstylist movie with all the things that are in a salon to do that you could use in horrible ways? <laughs> <And> <laughs> Then kind of went this more psychological thriller horror route, but I feel like there's still a place for like a really over the top straight slasher, or maybe that's you know the like fifth sequel that we're talking about. There we go. So it falls <laughs> oh, yeah, into that. Or like you just yeah, sell out all your like, integrity and just have her killing people with hair dryers and shit. It'll be awesome. Exactly. Cool. Because you know, like one of my big, my favorite film, horror films of all time is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I love how Toby Hooper when he went to part two, he was just like, I'm not going to try to do the same thing again. I'm going to make it a full-on slapstick comedy. So that's what we can do in 10 years, maybe. <laughs> two is two is so good. Two doesn't get enough credit either, I don't think. People, I mean, how do you follow up a classic like Texas Chainsaw Massacre? You just make a new film. Just a totally yeah. different thing. It was so smart to not even, he, he knew better than to like try to, to carry on the exact same kind of magic. So would you consider this, I mean, there's not actual consumption of flesh, but would this be a type of, like a part of the, the cannibalism subgenre to you? In my mind, it's a bit like Claire is trying, the dream is to become the other person to consume them in a way, right? Metaphorical cannibalism? Yeah. No. It is in that way. I never thought about it like that. I do think she's in, there's that whole like skin wearing uh, <laughs> yeah. thing that's in horror. It's not a subgenre, but it's like, it, I feel like it all comes from the real serial killer Ed Gain, and it's been mm. like how many films and TV shows in history. I mean, the big ones are like Chainsaw and buffalo bill and silence of the lambs and but it's like there was a character in american horror story that did like it's the skin wearing thing you know and i feel like maniac you know he's a he he didn't wear it but i thought felt like his his psyche sent, felt similar to all these all these killers they've all got it's all like the mommy issue thing and they dress yeah. like women and um but she was definitely inspired by the skin wearing killers in time like <laughs> Norman Bates, of course, that's the big one I forgot. Um, oh, yeah. Which I think are all people dealing with major repression, major abandonment, and major identity issues. It's like the con the connecting thing. Yeah. Small personal brag. One of my relatives actually took pictures of the Ed Gein house for the crime scene photography. Mm. So we, we had a couple of negatives from that. I, I believe my folks sold them. But, uh, yeah, we, we got to look at those pictures at one point, and it's just, ooh. Boy, that should have been a movie set because it was terrifying. I've known you for 15 years, and I can't believe you've never brought up that you have an Ed Gein connection. How have oh, you man. never well, mentioned this? I was waiting for the right time. <laughs> I've been to the town. His house isn't there anymore, but... Yeah, and I, I don't think they tell people where he's buried either. I think they had to relocate the grave or something because they, they didn't want people yeah. going out to the location. They've... His gravestone's been stolen so many times. <clears throat> the problem is that people are so disrespectful. And I want to say clearly, like, I'm not the kind of person that wants to go to, like, a real location and, you know, make a joke out of it. I think that's very inappropriate and insensitive. You know, like, going to the house from Texas Chainsaw and having fun, that's different. Going yeah, to a place where people were actually killed and, like, their family members are still living down the street and making a joke out of it is totally not okay. Because where his... His gravestone and his family is there. Even when I visited, there were like fake brains left there. And it's like, oh, this wow. is why yeah. this town is so offended by people coming by because of this reason. Cause they act like that, like act like it's a, 
like it's a movie or something like this was real life it you know it wasn't just a, a thing it's i think people need to be a little sensitive about that i think it's a little crazy when they get too f fanatic about serial killers you know yeah it's that's always something i really appreciated it about the stylist i good segue jamie uh, to You're return to that <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the podcast, um, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate how Claire is viewed very sympathetically throughout most of the film, and the movie doesn't want you to hate her as any kind of freak or monster. But at the same time, I do appreciate that there's no, there's not really any cathartic violence in this movie. There's not a scene of, well, then. Well, here we're going to have Claire just take out some bad character from early in the film that you're just hoping that she stabs. I like that. Yeah. You can ha you can do both. Have Claire be a, a three-dimensional sympathetic character, but also have the audience feel nothing but abject disgust and horror anytime she succumbs to her urges. Yeah, I think I never wanted... I'm personally not interested in people viewing the film, you know, that like it's cathartic, like the violences. Um, I think, and I'm, and I'm like morbidly interested in finding the humanity in like all characters, especially like the, you know, the ones we call the bad guy, the bad person. Um, like that extends to real life for me is the idea that we are all human underneath the most horrific thing that someone's done. And, you know, what does that mean? I, I'm not sure, but I'm interested in, like, thinking about that. That's ultimately, like, where all this spawned from. So character studies that exist in the realm of horror. Yeah. It's, it's very 70s in that way. I'm constantly reminded of uh, When a Stranger Calls with the stylist. Yeah, I've... Oh, my God. I love that movie. I just watched it again. <laughs> it's so forgotten for being more than just the one scene. It always drives yeah. me nuts. Is it such an amazing character study of... You you never feel sympathy with the killer because I mean what he's done is so just abject horror. But trying to get over, for lack of a better term, diseased part of himself and being pushed back towards it, it's almost psycho too in that way. Uh, it reminds me so much of uh, Silas. Reminds me so much of it, like that, that entire style, that character study, a way of something so difficult to understand. That's. You're told, you're right. Like, because when I rewatched it, because we all just remember the babysitter stuff, not the whole like thing that happened, the whole movie that happens afterwards. <laughs> yes. And I forgot how much of it, you know, how much you get to like know that guy, and it it doesn't just stay with the females. I can't. I, her name is Jill. I should remember that. Um, <laughs> but I that's a movie I actually stalked down. Speaking of being a stalker, as a like. 13, or like 12, 13, when I was really starting to geek out hard about horror movies. Um, that's when I had my mom drive me around to like every rental st video store that existed, trying to find it. It was not easy to find. <laughs> and I fell in love with it because, you know, that was also, it's an, it's based on an urban legend that goes back to like the 40s or 50s, which was, you know, featured in the scary stories to tell in the dark books. It's the babysitter story, but it ends not as morbidly as the movie. <laughs> and once I realized I, I learned all this, I was like, that story was my favorite as a kid in that book. Then I realized it was based on an urban legend and there was a movie with the same idea. And I like, I was like, I have to find this movie. And so now I'm like, 
was that movie in my head somewhere? I never really thought of it as an inspiration for the stylist, <laughs> but now you got me thinking. An essential part of childhood, just being terrified by strangers, possibly being in your house at any given moment. Yeah. They're calling from the other line upstairs. Then they try to redo that in this age. It just doesn't work. Like, you need landline phones for it to be scary. <laughs> the hell's a second line? Hey, Steve's calling yeah. me. Fuck off. Please don't, please don't be like, what is this movie even about? Like, what are these things they're calling on with cords connected to the wall? <laughs> but only the coolest kids, like, families had two lines, right? Like, uh, if you had your own line upstairs, that was like the coolest thing ever back then. <laughs> whoa, whoa, and upstairs. Whoa, whoa, we're, we're way out of my league. <laughs> Wait, you want to use family. the modem and the phone? Fuck off. <laughs> there you go. Well, I think we're pretty close to being out of time, so we should wrap up here. Thank you again so much for coming on. I could talk Neon Demon all day, so we, we better cut things here. <laughs> uh, if, if people want to find you on social media, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, find the film at The Stylist Film on all the places and me at Jill Six with two X's. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, folks, you can find more of Box Office Pulp on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, I think Amazon Music or something. You, you know where we're at. You're listening to the show. Uh, you can find us at Box Office Pulp on Twitter as well. Uh, boy. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This was awesome. Yeah, this was this was a thrill. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, I don't have a quippy way to end. So, folks, take a hike. Get out of here. Go on. Shoot. Skedaddle. <laughs> Argue with <laughs> the audience, lost. Cody. <laughs> I fight with the audience every episode, Mike. They should be used to it by now. Oh, he's getting the broom. And like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.